Welcome to the Hot Stove, presented by the Cup of Mets podcast. I'm Ian Bosniak, joined alongside by Matt DeSantis. We will be joined momentarily as well by James Shiano of the Mets uh, podcast. But for now, Matt, how we doing, buddy? Good, man. Another episode and uh, another week of Hot Stove. Um, also, just want to say a happy Thanksgiving to our listeners. Um, yeah. We're proud and happy that you listened to our podcast, so we just want to give you a thank, a thank you for that. Um, but yeah, welcome to episode three of the Hot Stove Rundown. Yes, and we're welcoming in Mr. Shiano, who again is a part of the Mets Up podcast, the official podcast of the New York Mets. As I mentioned, he will join us momentarily. But before we get going and dive into the hot stove, as Matt mentioned, things have begun to cook. Um, give us a follow on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. We are at Cup of Mets. Also, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast, whether it be on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So before James joins us, just a few quick notes. Um, the Mets signed Cole Sulcer. The hot stove is officially burning. Yep. Cole Sulcer, former Baltimore Oriole, uh, Miami Marlin, Diamondback. Posted a nice season in 2021, a 270 ERA in 60 games, 298 FIP. This must be a pitching lab type move here. I mean, oh, he's yeah. got the roster spot, so. Yep, you sign a guy like that with the ambition of dropping him into one of our new fancy pitching labs and seeing what they can do with him down in South Florida. I looked at that signing that has a David Stern stamp on it, my man, so. I think that's another, that's a big wait and see. That's a, uh, we're not going to know much until the spring, but it's good to see that we have a pulse in our front office. Absolutely. Um, it's good to see that moves are getting made as and I personally, it's the moves like that, that, uh, that really build a championship team. So no doubt, we'll see what happens. no doubt. And if you notice a lot of the times, you know, the reason why teams don't splurge on bullpen pieces is because players like a guy like Cole Sulcer come out of nowhere and post a good season. Exactly. So hopefully, again, as you said, a stern stamp um, written all over him. So, Cole, welcome to the Mets. And then just quickly before we welcome in our guest, Lance Lynn signed. Aaron Nola signed. Two names off the board. What did I tell you about Lance Lynn, Matt? Teams were yeah, going to covet him. You said that somebody was going to come out and uh, pay for the veteran uh, starting pitcher who has a lot of innings under his belt. So I do. I gave you kudos. Thank you. You were sir. right on what team that they were coming to, though. No, I you wasn't. thought that he was going to be a Metropolitan, right? I wanted him to be a Metropolitan. Yeah. 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 I did. No, I wouldn't have been. I would have been. I wouldn't have been mad at that price. No, no. 10 million bucks for a guy that's going to give you 30 starts, toss close to 200 innings. Listen. But realistically, though, the I'm thinking about this from the Cardinals' perspective. They got a lot more work to do other than just that. That they do. And I think that they're kind of also following a similar path that the Mets are in the sense of let's get a lower-end guy that has high upside, let's get a middle-of-the-rotation guy, and then let's get a big guy, or let's get a big guy and then a middle guy. Because uh, obviously the Cardinals have a lot of work to do, and then Aaron Nola heads back to Philly. Yeah, I seven, honestly, year, I think, seven years, one hundred seventy-two million bucks. I think they were hearing them Atlanta footsteps. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think noise was getting loud, and I think um, Dave Dombrowski, who's the president of baseball operations for the Phillies, he heard something. I I think Atlanta was gonna give them a serious run for their money. I wouldn't actually be surprised if the Braves offer ended up coming in more than what he got, but. It looks to me that people want to play for, for the Phillies and be a part of that organization. So he definitely, he, he I don't he, know why. He got a big payday. I agree. They, their fans eat horse shit off of the ground. Their, um, <laughs> their fans, their fans suck. The city, the city's dirty. I mean, I shouldn't say anything. New York is dirty as well. So I shouldn't say anything, but New York's filthy. Know. Yeah, no, that it is. That it is. But I mean, I agree with you. And Atlanta's been linked to Sonny Gray as well as of recent. That's yeah. another big horse that could end up commanding anywhere between, I don't know, I'd say $18 million and up per season, probably on like a three or four year deal. Yeah. Atlanta could get stronger. I could see that. Or I hate to say it, I could also see a Blake Snell. If they, I think if they were. Prepared to spend Nola money. How are you not prepared to spend Snell money? Yeah. And then on the reverse route of that, there was a report that the Phillies were looking at Yoshinibu Yamamoto and were interested in him. And then they signed Aaron Nola the next day. So what I was wondering is, you know, there was also links between the Phillies and Blake Snell. So I was wondering, is Nola going to be that big signing for the rotation? And then they're going to fill out the the remaining spots. I am questioning if they're still big fish hunting, if they're going to go after a Blake Snell or a Yamamoto, knowing that Zach Wheeler hits free agency next year. It's definitely something to keep an eye on. Eye on. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Middleton, the, uh, the owner of the Phillies, as well as, you know, Mr. Dombrowski, as you mentioned, they, they're proactive, and I think that's what's gotten them kind of far the past two years, and I think that that's going to continue. And now they have Aaron Nola under their belt. Their one-two punch is still intact. And, again, we're waiting for the pulse of the of the Mets to, to begin, and I think it'll begin quite shortly. I don't think it's going to be like uh, how it usually feels like with Steve Cohen just going out and dropping money on free agents. I think there'll be there'll be more strategy to it this year. It'll be much more strategic. It'll it'll you know he'll David Cerns has a much more methodical approach to the way that he fills out the roster and what he has twelve or fourteen vacant forty man roster spots. Yeah, we have a we have an we have the most flexibility out of anybody in the league in terms of roster spots. So exactly, I expect a big overhaul. Exactly. And the guy like Solcer is a minor league contract. So, you know, you don't have to worry about filling out the 40 man with that. So only good things and uh, excited to hear from James about more. We are stoked to bring in James Shiano from the Mets Up podcast. James, welcome to the uh, welcome to the pod. What's up, fellas? Good to be here. Good to see you both. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking a couple minutes before Monday Night Football. Oh, we got you. Hopefully more than a couple minutes. A lot of Mets stuff to talk about right now. A lot of things happening. Tons, tons. And yeah, we obviously I, I Matt and I, we've spoken about, and obviously we're missing Rob, but we've spoken about Mendoza the last few weeks. Obviously, you were there. Uh can you give us like a little bit of a rundown, just what you heard, the vibes. I mean, I'm super excited. I think the vibes are really good at the press conference and I was there. You could just tell how excited 
proud and like ready to go that he was preparation seemed on point. And that's what everybody said about him mostly is that he was just all about it. Um, it seemed like just like always like the New York, especially the Mets beat reporters and the journalists are always going to like a lot of them are going to like circle like vultures, like try to get a soundbite, try to get you to trip up, try to get you to say something you shouldn't have said. But he answered every single question as well as he could. It was amazing to watch him go back and forth between Spanish and English. Like one of the things I'm most excited about with him, very honestly, is that he is bilingual. Yeah, I think it's something that's underrated in like public, especially for most of us who grew up in America, where it's like we 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 had something difficult happening in our day and our lives and our game and anything, and we can talk about it and we don't have to like we don't have to like multitask. When we're talking about our problems, also trying to like figure out a second language. Just having a guy sitting on the bench who like Brian Mauricio Francisco Alvarez doesn't have the best game they want. Like he can talk to them about it in a way that's more comforting to what they're probably used to and could make their brain be able to process it more easily. So I think that's super underrated and something I'm really excited about. But again, it just seems like preparation. He's really, really, really seems good at being able to meld what your front office will give you and your analytics department will give you in terms of data and information while also bringing it to a baseball field. There was a great story from a uh, Will Salmon at the athletic where he did like a whole profile of basically everything Carlos Mendoza did in like the 20 some odd years. He was in the Yankee organization, maybe like 17, I guess, technically as a minor league or assistant coach, but, the Yankees were one of the worst teams at holding on runners in 2021. And he was like, there's a big issue. And he went to the front office. He was like, Hey, why was this a problem? And like, how can we change it? And the front office, I like, gave him the information they needed to do that. And then the Yankees pitching coach gave him a lot of credit because he took that Matt Blake took him the information and gave it back to the team in terms of like drills and things to work on. And the Yankees in 2022 became the best team in the league at holding on runners and not allowing stolen bases. So just the fact that he's like, I can identify a problem. I know it needs to be fixed. Tell me how to fix it. And then you tell me this stuff and I'll retranslate it back to the field. I think that's the most important thing. And I think that's something that's super understated, just like in modern baseball coaching. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I definitely, to touch up on what you just said, I feel like one of his best attributes as a manager is going to be his communication skills. Totally. Like you said, his bilingual, that's going to be, that's going to be huge for us. Um, not only, like you said, communicating with younger players like a, like a Francisco Alvarez, but communicating across the board, you know, ta- having uh, consistency across the board with front office and stuff like that. And especially now um, in the baseball world that is so analytically driven, um, I think it's going to be really big for the Mets to have somebody that's, you know, younger, first time manager growing into the position. But I think these are all things that he's more than capable of handling. Um, he's been in the New York market for a long time. He's been around a lot of great, great minds. So I realistically, I think he's up for this challenge, but ultimately I think those, that will be one of his best attributes to the team is his communication and the way that he can, he can send messages to our players, to um, our front office. And especially when they're collaborating on things, you know, such as like the lineup cards or, you know, just like simple things like that. Totally. Now we're going, it's weird if you look back on it, but four straight managers that the Mets have hired have all had experience with New York city itself. Cause we had Mendoza spent almost two decades in the Yankee organization. We had Buckshaw Walter managed the Yankees. It was yeah. about 30 years ago, but he still did manage the Yankees, had exposure in New York. Before him, Lu- Luis Rojas, who was already part of the best organization. And before him, the sneaky one, Carlos Beltran, who we all know has a lot of experience in New York City as well. So now four straight managers hired by the Mets have had experience in New York City, which I think is interesting and also kind of telling. Yeah, Mickey Calloway didn't make the cut there. Yeah. No, didn't um, not, not a New York guy. No, not a, definitely not a New York guy. Um, He's not a actually, baseball guy either. 
not a baseball guy. He's actually guy. a bad guy. Yeah, I actually, and I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it a buck. I was at the 2018 winter meetings. Was it 2018? 2017, 2017, 2018. No, it was 2018. I was at the winter meetings and I heard from people that he was a quote unquote dog. Was it the bad way or the good way? In a in a bad way. In yeah, a bad way. That's, that's and, true. I mean, and then and then when I heard everything, I was like, oh well, this, you know, put yeah. the puzzle pieces together. It makes sense. But yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, we didn't bring you on here to talk about Mickey Calloway, but God no. But yeah, so did you get a chance to speak with Carlos? I didn't get a chance to speak with him. I, I wanted to get a question off, but there were just so many journalists there that I, I didn't wind up getting called upon. I actually, I wanted to ask him a question, something I tweeted about that was kind of funny and got some good steam the day he was hired. It was from his Wikipedia, so it's all Wikipedia, but it came directly from the Michael K show that apparently Carlos, one, he's pious, he's a religious guy, and two, he seems like he's a little superstitious, which I feel like if you're in baseball, you kind of have to be a little superstitious. You can't go through 162 with just, just your brain cells. And apparently before every Yankee game, he used to take 40 sunflower seeds and throw 40 individual seeds behind home plate for every single player in the Yankee 40-man roster. And that would be like his ritual to start the game. So in that morning, I was on my way to City Field, like ready to ask that question, but I wanted to get the sourcing of it just so I could ask like a little more intelligent question, like trying to pretend to be a journalist for half a second. And I went to his Wikipedia and it was gone. And I knew it was on his Wikipedia because I screenshot it and put it on Twitter. So I was like, oh, man, like someone someone definitely took this off. Like the tweet had like, I think, 50,000 impressions. So I was like, I guess someone saw this. And I was like, we don't want this to be the calling card for Carlos Mendoza, which I, if we ever get to interview him for the podcast and we had a chance to do it that day, but Mark had an engagement that he couldn't miss and we wanted to do it together, not just one of us. That's something I definitely would have asked him. But that wasn't the kind of thing I was going to ask him live in front of the organization and the journalists if it got taken off his wikipedia when do you think that you guys would have the opportunity to potentially uh interview him i mean is it is he yeah, in new york is he in new york right now is he i bet now because i think i'm sure he's with family i think the week after thanksgiving is the winter meetings if i'm not mistaken so yep. i think he's he'll probably wind up being there with stearns and the rest of the brain trust but i know last year we got buck right at the beginning of spring training so i'm hoping we get to do that again and just get get some time because i feel like Everyone's hearing the same sound bites. I think one of the best things that Mark and I do on Met stuff is that we kind of bring a little more of a human element to it. Like we'll ask guys some different kinds of question. Like one of our best things, one of our best TikToks we ever did a few years ago is that we asked, we knew Chris Bassett was like also a college basketball player up in Akron. And we were like, if you had to make a starting five for the, these guys out here, these, the other 25, like who are you picking? And like, that was a fun thing. And he liked answering that. We heard Tommy Hunter talk about like winning winning gold and like the youth Olympics for judo, which was a story that we just found in the depths of his social media. No one knew about like we, we were doing, we got some funny sound bites from Buck last year. We got some good stuff from Lindor and Sanga over the last couple of years, just being able to bring that. And I kind of want to do that with Mendoza. Cause I think one of the funniest things about him is he's just like almost completely anonymous. Like he was yeah. hired. He was in the process. People are like, who is that? He got hired. People are like, who is that? Like I just said, like, the one interesting thing I found is Wikipedia got scrubbed and the whole Wikipedia is just like completely normal. And he's just he talking to him that day, like hearing to him talk to the media. I mean, the guy just like loves his family and he loves baseball and he wants to win, which is like in terms of three things, like perfect A, B and C. But it's also like we're in New York. There's a lot of personality. And I think the more that fans will get to know him, then I think people will like him more because some people just get upset that he's a name they don't know. Yeah. And I feel like every offseason, it doesn't matter what team is looking for a manager. There's always you know, that dark horse man manager that kind of comes out of nowhere. And, you know, for the last few years, we've heard of, uh, I believe it was uh, Clayton McCullough um, over in LA, obviously Ryan Flaherty this year with, with San Diego, and he's a front runner for the Padres job, but 
Mendoza kind of really did come on quick and his name mm-hmm. popped up. And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, he's a front runner and he's a finalist. And then it appeared that council was kind of using the Mets as leverage and using other teams as leverage. So what do, would you make of, what do you make of that situation? I feel like that's just, I don't know. Like I'm, I feel like in modern baseball, like so much of the manager's role has changed. Like some people say it's diminished. I don't really think it's diminished because still like any sport, like just maintaining the attitudes and the egos of, like a dozen or so millionaires has to be difficult like in and of itself. But the council thing, just like, I, I, I can't figure out what he does that's worth $8 million a year. I just can't. Again, it's not my money, so I don't really care. But for a guy that if, if the three of us and Craig council were all on this call together, all of us would have managed the same amount of world series games. So like, I can't, I can't really say like, yeah, this is the guy to do it. Like Bochi, I get it. Like, I don't think he's ever lost a game seven. Like there's some tangible things there. You definitely can't be like, all right, this means nothing. But council, like, I think he's a great manager. Don't get me wrong. His decision-making, what he did with those Brewers teams, the way he related to players, the great things, all players and front office staff said about him. The fact that he's like such a great collaborator and like such a student of analytics, like came from the, came from a front office role originally with the Brewers and then got down to the field as a manager. I think that's really cool. And that's really interesting, but like, I'm sure he'll be fine there. Like, I think the Cubs roster needs significantly more work than their manager did. So I think it's just a weird way to spend $8 million a year. Yeah, just yeah, ousting, ousting Rossi out of nowhere. Yeah, nowhere. Organizational hero. And, like, like the funny meme that went around is that Craig Council is making more money than Ozzy Albies. Like, that's kind of messed up. Like, that's ridiculous. There's no way he's worth more than Ozzy Albies. Exactly. The, the Braves have been scanning people for years or while well, their own players. But um, I, I, I personally... We talked about this, I think, last podcast and the podcast before that. And I said, before anything, Steve Cohen is a businessman and he knows what's going on. He is yeah. not going to get pushed around at a table uh, by Craig Council. For Come sure. On. And, and like Craig Council, he was still living, I think, in the same town he went to high school in. Like he went to Notre Dame, which is right there. And then he yep. played on the Brewers and then he worked for the Brewers organization for like the last like 15 years as well. It's like, this just doesn't smell like a new york eye to me like i don't know if i was that like it's like i don't know would you guys take a job immediately to go work in milwaukee for a pay raise uh, i mean it have to be really good that'd yeah, be really good yeah, offer uh, and yeah, even if you did it like how how invested would you be really like oh, i'll go there for a year two years maybe three years things go well but then it's like i'm not trying to plant my roots there like, you could just kind of feel that with council and that's okay i don't think new york was ever in his cards what about uh, what do you think why not? what's council guy it was never in his cards. All of the smoke from all the reporters and all of that. I just feel like he used that to his advantage. He probably was like, listen, I'm coveted on this market. So um, the Cubs went out there and paid him. You know, onwards and upwards for us. I mean, um, I, I think that all three of us can agree that we're pretty stoked about Carlos and, and what he brings oh, yeah. to the organization. What do you, you know, we have Hef remaining in his role. Eric Chavez moving back to hitting coach. How do we see the rest of the, the, the coaching staff kind of filling out? Are there any names that, that you're hearing? I mean, I know that, I know that uh, a guy that he's really close with is, is Ozzy Guillen, but you would probably want to put him with like an experienced manager. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious to see how the rest of the coaching staff rounds out. Yeah, I definitely am too. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm definitely not privy to any kind of rumors, but it would make, logical sense for him to be paired with like an experienced bench coach. He's never been a major league bench before, but I also kind of fear the way this media market works where it's like, if he's sitting next to someone who then people think is more suited for the role that he has, which I don't think will ever be true, but 
and it's also like a stupid fear like if that just happens like that's just that's just me being like scared about the way people are going to talk about it, just being scared of discourse but I feel like he's he managed the minor leagues. He has his own team. Like he's managing the winter leagues. Like he definitely knows how to run a game. I think it's more just about like maintaining emotions. Like I think about like conceptually when the Mets had Rojas, like they hired a guy like Glenn Sherlock to be the bench coach. Where it's like this isn't a name. This is there's no flash here, but there's someone who's been at major league benches before. And again, Mendoza has been major league benches before. He's been Aaron Boone's bench coach for the last couple of years. I think Booney gets thrown out of more games than any other manager in baseball. So he was doing a lot of managing himself on a major league team in New York City which is kind of funny too, but I think that just, I don't know. There's like, let him pick a guy who he's cool with. I think Ozzy Guillen would be explosive. I think, I don't think I want Ozzy Guillen as my yeah. bench coach. Like I, Ozzy Guillen is, he's a firecracker. He did, Mendoza and Guillen do a relationship though. And he talked about that on the press conference because Mendoza is only the second ever Venezuelan born manager hired to a major league team with Guillen being first. And he said that like one of the first calls congratulating him was Ozzy. He's like, yeah, let's go. Like, cause that is a cool thing. Like two, two fellow countrymen, the only two guys to ever have that job is, is kind of sick. But to also hear Francisco Alvarez talk about the impact that it's had. Uh, uh, there was an excerpt about, you know, people were it was like the talk in Venezuela and everybody was, you know, becoming Mets fans over in Venezuela because of Carlos Mendoza and him being, you know, brought on. Yeah, they should. And he, I mean, Carlos and Francisco is Venezuelan too, of course. I think that was a that was a big one. But again, I think that's just going to be so much so great for him to be able to relate. So is Luis Alcuna also Venezuelan. Yeah. No. Sneaky, sneaky one. But. I can definitely see them hiring more like more than like an experienced manager, just like an older face. Right. Like, like the rumor that was circulating heavy was Willie Randolph, which I think would be, I mean, it'd be cool as a story. There's been absolutely no reputability to it at all so far, but I think that would be crazy to bring someone with as much like prestige and panache as like Willie Randolph to sit next to your first year manager. I don't know. I like, maybe it would work. I'm not saying it wouldn't work. But I just think that would be, I think that we're like, we did like Buckshaw Walter thing happened. And like, that was like someone who was like pretty famous having this role. And it feels like now with Stearns, there's more of like a recession into like, you're receding more into baseball where it's like, we, we care very little about the flash. Like if they would have cared more about the flash, I think they would have gone and beat the asking price for Craig council. But really we're just parsing everything down. It's just baseball. Now. And I think that's something that we can find comforting as Mets fans. I totally agree. And I, I, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, people can think what they want about Billy Epler. I think he did an A-plus job at last year's deadline. Um, I think he brought in the talent on our farm system that we were missing. Um, like Steve has been saying since day one, he wants a he wants a juggernaut farm system. He wants a Dodgers-like farm system. Um, so I think as, as, as Stearns comes in and starts getting to work, I think our um, – our, or what would I like to say, our amateur scouting department is going to benefit a lot, which brings us to our next point of our pet of our newest uh, hires, guys like Chris Gross and Andy Green. What do you think about that? Considering that Andy Green was a finalist, right, for our manager job, I yep. think in the last go around he was. And I know I definitely have more on Chris Gross and Andy Green because I know that Green's coming from an on-field role for the last few years, I believe, at the Padres to now being one of our heads of player development, which. I, again, I, I just I just don't know as much. So I like I'm scared to remark on it, but we'll definitely learn more about it these next coming weeks. But he's someone who I know is just respected in the baseball sense. I also know it's funny that he took his last career at bat with, with the, Mets. the Mets. I think it's funny yep. now he's coming here. Yeah, he's coming here in like the front office role. But I know Chris Gross. I have a good friend of mine who works for the Astros, and he said that like that was a that was like not not like a gut punch, but that was like a whoa. Like him him leaving is like a big I heard. Yeah, like he's someone who is very well respected 
in terms of like being able to scout college players. Like the Astros have had some of the best hit rates. I think the best hit rate in all baseball over the last decade of you're, turning, you're, you're, turning you're graphics into major leaguers. Like not necessarily like that was a, a graphic that was going around. I think that was a classic Jake Huda from over the summer and some dude I messed with her who I think is kind of lame. He's a, he's a, uh, a Mets, Mets Twitter beat writer. Yeah. He's, he's kind of lame. He gave, he gave, he posted that graphic with no um, credit to the person who made it, which is kind of crappy, but that that's also a little misleading because like the Astros do turn a lot of those guys into ma- uh, major leaguers, which is a great thing. The Mets had the lowest hit rate of turning those guys into major leaguers, but there was another graphic that went around like the next day because Jake Hood always like repeats this stuff that just goes by like war accumulated by draft picks. The Mets are actually like in the middle of the pack, if not towards the top ten in that one. It was similar range as the Astros, but I think it still is meaningful to be able like to build your just being able to. I, here's an amateur, and here's getting into the major leagues. Massive success, and the fact that Chris Gross like oversaw a department that made that happen more often than any other team in baseball, I think is a good thing. And just hearing people inside the organization, like prospect people, baseball America people, my buddy with the Astros, like everyone was like, yeah, he's legit. Like that's a really cool thing yeah. and happy we have him. Everything I was reading when we had, was, what did that drop yesterday? Or was uh, it? Saturday, I believe. Saturday. So everything I was reading, everybody was saying, great baseball mind, future GM. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, to see us add somebody of that caliber with the respectability around the league, I think will be great. And, you know, we need to hit on more, on more of these draft picks because we can't keep going out and having to spend $300 million every off season, just to, just to plug our holes. Like we, we that's not sustainable. And, and as much money as Steve Cohen has, no organization should be ran like that. No, totally. And I also know that, Gross and Stearns worked together briefly when Stearns with the Astros before he went to the Brewers, like 2013, 2014 time. So I'm sure they built a relationship and I'm sure he watched him rise up to prominence in that organization. It was like, I want to bring this person to do this with me. Yeah. yeah. I, I, st- I studied his LinkedIn page quite a bit and yeah, it literally lot. it was quite extensive, just yeah. straight. He was just a straight cross checker for like seven, eight years. And then he went immediately into being the scouting director. And um, obviously the, Astros turn over quite a few um, solid players. So, I mean, I, I think it's a great hire all the, all the way around. And I agree with you, you know, not a lot can be said on Andy green until we kind of see the fruits of that develop because we don't really know much about them. And hopefully maybe in a, you know, down the road, you can enlighten us on that. But yeah. um, you know, I, I definitely think that David Stern is building out this powerhouse front office that he's trying to uh, accumulate. Yeah, it is, it is interesting with Stearns. I mean, also just like Green, the fact that he's like an on-field baseball guy and he's going to be in our player development. Like, I'm sure he's going to be supplemented by people who do numbers that will we'll probably never know half their names, but just being able to accept that information, then bring it out and send it back to the rest of the organization. Like, that seems like those are the most important things for Stearns. Like, this collaboration between your information people and your baseball people, and if he trusts Green to be able to do that, I trust him. It's just crazy living in a world where I trust David Stearns like infinitely, like any move he makes, like, I don't know, the, like if, if I knew the type of cereal he ate in the morning, I'd be like, that's, that's awesome. That's the right cereal. Like good job, yeah. David Stearns. I <laughs> know Cheerios are the man, but yeah. I'm just like, I'm so devoutly like confident in what he's done, just doing. And like, I, it's a weird feeling as like a fan of, let alone the Mets, like most of the New York teams to be like, yeah, I really trust the vision. I really don't care what happens. Another thing that's cool about what he's doing and the Mets have been doing this trending up the last few years. Like there's a lot of, really specific restrictions on most of the money you could spend across baseball. We know the famous Steve Cohen tax they put in the CBA a few years ago. And that, that, uh, that made a big impact in the Mets trade line decisions this year. But 
there's still no limit. There's something they've tried to put in the CBA, but it hasn't gotten passed on how much money you can spend on player development, coaches, and organizational staff. So that is where you'll see, and we've seen last few years, like Steve Cohen's wallet come into play. Like that can breathe us our greatest advantage. The Giants and the Rangers the last few years have been on the top, same with the Dodgers, of hiring the most coaches and the most analysts of any team in the sport. And we've seen immediately like those three teams like have immediate success because of it. So the fact that you have the opportunity to go and like take talented people from other organizations and just give them more money and like have them choose to come over is a huge advantage. And the fact that that's something that as of right now, with certain collective bargaining agreement that we have in place isn't capped. That's where we can get ahead of other people. And I think that's where the Mets are trying to get ahead of other people. And that's comforting coming from the time with the Wilpons where we like famously had like three people in the analytics department. Yeah. And it, and it, and it just shows, you know, from building out the front office to stripping down the roster to have the most kind of roster flexibility. And when it comes to adding pieces this off season, I think he's just already kind of put his mark in it. Also just in his uh, interviews, he, the confidence that he instills, he, he seems yeah. like he's been here for, for like five, 10 years. I mean, again, like Mendoza, he's a New Yorker. Like he was growing up in Manhattan. He, said he was sneaking into Shea Stadium in the nineties. Like he's like, he's a guy, like he feels like one of us, if one of us were like significantly smarter and more successful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of us he's a Mets fan he grew up Mets fan he does want to see his team win he knows he's the one capable of putting it together and that's beautiful yeah along with a uh fan and an owner it it makes for it makes for a beautiful bunch um obviously though the farm system as of right now pitching wise not where it needs to be when it comes to helping the major league roster uh as of yet obviously the names of like Mike Vassell Dominic Hamill, Christian Scott, like they're coming along, right? But uh, the Mets have to focus in on the rotation this offseason and look to the free agent market. We've already seen Aaron Nola head back to Philly. Uh, Lance Lynn, who is somebody that I really wanted the Mets to get um, as a back-end piece, just the durability, uh, the reliability, the 30 starts a year, 200 innings. I know that he had a really rough season last year, but whatever. Um, You know, with the pitching lab, his wife posted that he's working really hard on social media, you know. Um, But obviously, he he heads back to St. Louis. What are you looking at in the starting pitching market? Obviously, we're all waiting for, you know, Yamamoto, who gets posted um, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. officially. We won't know about that until December because that's when he's going to be meeting with clubs according to sources but uh how do we see this uh starting pitching market plan out i think that like this was the biggest mistake the mets made last year where they were going for a lot of top end over volume because i think that we took for granted like how many innings we got in 2022 out of both Tywin walker and chris bassett mm-hmm. yep. let alone max scherzer who's healthy for a full season i think this mets team realistically right now to compete the way they keep saying they want to compete next year you probably need 350 innings, maybe 400 innings need to find them before we can get them. And you did touch on the prospects. I think that the Mets crop of starting pitching prospects is like much better than I think a lot of people outside of the Mets think, but I think you're probably not getting high impact this year. Like I think Vassal's fine. Like he's a good, he's a good ball player. I think Christian Scott has a lot. I think Dominic Hamill has a lot of sneaky upside. And I think Tidwell is kind of the prize, but it's probably a full, another full year before he's making a big impact. But yeah. You just really have to spam these guys. And the Mets did get lucky at the same time as they need a ton of pitching. There's like a massive, massive, massive middle ground of pitchers available as free agents. 
besides Yamamoto, like that's really the only sexy name left now after Nola, Blake Snell. As much as I love him in fantasy baseball, like just throwing him in there as my SP two or three every year when the draft price persists, he's just terrifying. And like he's someone who I also think is not, and this is like, like this is stupid. Like there's no analysis here, but like he just smells like I was not built for New York. Like mm-hmm. I just feel like someone could write a scathing article and like he could crumble. Like I mean, I have no proof or no records of that either. But just I, I don't know. And I've always liked Snell. Like the stuff is incredible, but. He's someone who I'd be really scared to commit the amount of money to that you need them to just because of how inconsistent he's been year after year and how inconsistent his workloads are year after year. One of the things I like so much about Noel is that he's just like 150, 160, 170, 180, 200 guy. Like that's what the Mets need right now. I believe in Kodai Sanga as like a true like one, two type guy. And now it's just getting someone else who could do that, which maybe that's Sonny Gray, but Sonny Gray is a Southern boy and he's like, there's a draft pick attached to him. Jordan Montgomery is not spectacular, but he's eating tons of innings. And then you get into like the next tier of like, Kenta Maeda, Seth Lugo, Jack Flaherty, Shoto Imanaga, the other Japanese pitcher coming over along with Yoshinobu Yamamoto. And then it's like, wh- where are you finding like your difference maker? Like could Frankie Montes, Luis Severino be a difference maker that you redevelop a little bit, get them healthy? Like, cause otherwise like where, like where's your punch? Like where are you getting that impact from? And it feels like, cause the Mets are walking a line right now, I think between like how hard they want to go to compete in 2024. Cause you know, there's massive reinforcements on the way, you know, there are big free agents next few years, you know, there's generally money to spend, but you don't, they've been so reluctant to give these massive long-term contracts to guys who are not named Francisco Lindor brand Nim over the last few years. I think that's because I know that this, this is like the fake window. And I think the window after this is the real window. We're not the fake window, but I think this is just like, let's see if we can do something crazy. Whereas like after this, we're like, we're building sustainable winner. So I think whatever happens with Yamamoto could could shift the direction of the Mets offseason a lot because he is the he's the prize. Like he's the jewel, like he's the top end pitcher, like he's everything you want. And every other pitcher is like, maybe I want this guy. So are you are you stretching it out to a six man then? If oh, you for sign sure. if you sign Yamamoto? Totally. And I think I think Stearns, he gave um at the GA meetings, one that was canceled early for neurovirus a few weeks ago. Yeah. Save the Stearns before before everyone got sick and started throwing up. They he gave a really good um he just gave a really good talk to the media, just like back and forth. And like some of the sound bites he grabbed and I thought were interesting because I thought it was something that was one, like gave me more confidence, and two, something that more front office executives should be talking about, but aren't is the fact that he was like going to every single player and like analyzing their strengths and weaknesses and asking what they want to do. Like the fact that we already have Kodai Sango, who last year was an ace, absolutely to the top of the top of that, what that term means, but was significantly better pitching on the sixth day and the fifth day, which is something he's always done his entire career. It's like, okay, like let's play to our guy's strengths. Like I do, like we just, the only stop thing stopping us there is like having six actual starting pitchers. Cause right now we have like basically two and a half, like in this rotation. And then we're going to see what we get. But especially if you get Yamamoto, like I, I think there's almost, there's almost no doubt. And then they asked like, oh, so what does that entail? He was like, first it's like getting six pictures and like, you know, actually looking at their schedule, like seeing where off days are and like planning where these spot starts are going to be because like pitching management in a season, like that's an organism. Like that thing's alive the whole time. Like you can't like, it's not going to be the show. I'm not setting my rotation in April and like simming to the end of the year. Like we got, we're going to change this a lot. Like last year, the Dodgers I think had 13 or 14 different guys start the game for them. And they still had one of the best records in all of baseball. Like, to do that the right way, like you got to have a lot in the in the cupboard. You got to have a lot of bolts in the chamber, and the Mets need to find those. But I think that is that should be the plan. If especially if we have two high level pitchers who came from the MPB, like we should make sure that they can be as good as they can be, and that comes with six man rotation. Agreed. Yeah, and I I think that there are there's an abundance of those like middle ground pitchers that you mentioned. Um, two guys in particular that 
that I like. Michael Lorenzen, another one, is Mike Clevenger. Clevenger last year for the White Sox, really bad White Sox team, uh, was able to you know put up a decent season. He did only make 24 starts, and he hasn't been a starter that can toss you know 30 games since uh, 2018. But he posted a 377 ERA, uh, you know a little over two WAR and 24 starts. Um, guys like in that pack, I think would be a good fit for the middle. And then getting a guy like a reclamation project, like you mentioned, a Luis Severino or a Hunjai Ryu or something along those lines, someone that has high upside and is kind of like a low risk. I think that I think that that's kind of the way that you fill out the rotation. But it also it sounds like you kind of you and I share a similar viewpoint in the sense of spreading out the money. So for me, like I know that my number two, if I fail to sign Yamamoto, I'm dropping, you know, let's say Yamamoto is going to get 28 to 30 million AAV, right? I'm going to yeah. drop that down to between 20 and 25 uh, million AAV in a Jordan Montgomery. That's going to be my, second do you do you have somebody there or are you patching it with different guys yeah if they if they miss Yamamoto and if it was me making these calls I probably would just straight up patch it out after that like I would do because I think like if Montgomery didn't just have this wicked hot streak and just earn himself tons more money I would like him a lot more and I do I love Jordan Montgomery as a pitcher and as a competitor and as a baseball player but like I I fear I fear spending a lot of money on something that's like less repeatable and a guy like montgomery who's more like a command guy more of a ground ball guy like i'd like to buy strikeout upside if i'm gonna buy i like to buy velocity and montgomery doesn't really have either of those things i think he's a fine starting pitcher but like getting to the end of that year watch him gut out that world series game getting no strikeouts in six innings i was like this this wouldn't happen again if like he threw all the same pitches in the exact same places and again i think he's great but like it would be his fourth organization in less than three years and just like i think he's good but it's just I don't know, like to get another like soft tossing sinker ball or really have Quintana for that. Like, I again, I think he's fine, but I think you could almost for half the money, like I could see Clevenger being better than him. I could definitely see Seth Lugo being better than him. I could definitely see Kenta Maeda being better than him. I could definitely see Montes, Severino, Tyler Molly all finding a way to be better than him. I'm obsessed right now with the Eric Fetty reclamation project coming back from the KBO out of nowhere. Great article I talked about in that stuff from the Washington Post about him recently, just the fact that he completely redefined himself like as an athlete went to the KBO was the absolute superstar of that league he said he couldn't even walk down the street or go out to eat in Korea without getting mobbed by fans he said he would leave his house in the Washington DC area he said no one would even recognize him like he I think he's coming back as like a totally reinvented dude and he's kind of a hilarious last option for the Mets like a nice wild card at the end but Montgomery I feel like right now we're at the point where like his fame and his prestige has surpassed his talent and I want to pay for the talent like not the prestige but again I think he's good I think he's probably giving you a more consistent workload and almost every other guy in this list. But I'm really curious to see where that number winds up. Like if he's a $20 million guy, I'll be like, congratulations. I, I think I'd rather pay someone less. See, I, I, I actually agreed with that sentiment and Matt and Rob changed my mind. And now you're changing my mind back. So there you go. snip, snap, snip, snap. Yeah. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. You're actually, uh, you're backing me up here. Okay, sweet. So it sounds like you would fill out. And I mean, I'm I'm actually going to bring this up. Would you have signed Justin Verlander last offseason then? No, I definitely wouldn't okay. have. All right, I, so I, talk, I talked about it. It's funny because I had talked about it 
on a podcast before it happened where I was like, there's a lot of data that show. And again, I, I, I loved having Justin Verland on the team and he still went back to the Astros and pitched great. And he was just a really cool guy to talk to. He gave a really good interview. He was really nice. And like really appreciate having him in the organization. But um, dude, there's a lot of research between how far away you get from your Tommy John surgery and where that, what that does to your productivity. And the fact that like you have what they call like a honeymoon period, like a Cinderella period after your Tommy John surgery, where everything's like handy dandy but then you start to lose a little bit. And what Verlander lost a lot of was that fastball shape, like the pop on his fastball, the ride in his fastball. The thing that always made his fastball so explosive. So then when he was elite, it was 99 with the perfect shape and like, I can't hit this. And then he got older and older. The shape was still amazing. He still got that great backspin on it, but it became 95 a good backspin. So that's like where you're precarious because now your velocity is average, but your shape is above average. So then you're scared of when that shape goes below average. Now you're throwing balls down the middle. People are going to hit. And again, he's still got great results. I'm pretty, probably still be really good again this year, but I just thought that that was them being like, we got to fill this hole right now, which again, they need to fill that hole right now, but it, it like, and he still was successful the whole time, but it just, it felt like that felt like we're going to spend a lot of money for someone who I think you're paying for what he did rather than what he will do, which is the fear a lot of times of starting pitchers on the free agent market in general. Yeah. And I, it just like, Thinking of losing out on Yamamoto and then pivoting to somewhere else and giving nine figure to nine figures to somebody else really does kind of remind me of like last year we lost out on Jacob Degrom, went to Justin Verlander when we could have spread that out towards pitchers that could have given us innings. Obviously, we didn't expect the injury, but you know, um, yeah, I think I I would have done that for Nola. I think Nola would have been that guy. Like I think that he gives you enough of a floor of being a dog and also the innings where I'm like, I, I, I would definitely would have given him the contract the Phillies gave him, but it just sounded like he really wanted to be in Philadelphia. And again, yeah. he's going to, he's going to, if he plays out the whole contract, with the Phillies, he'll be one of the longest tenured Phillies in the history of the Philly organization. So like congratulations to him for that. But I think that could have been someone who would have been able to fill in nicely, albeit much less sexy in Yamamoto. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, he only got 24 and I think three quarters or something like that. Something like that, yeah, which is a fine rate, especially the way the pitchers go for now. Like that's not that's not a crazy thing. It's just it's just you're you're buying you're buying mid and late thirties for a guy with thousands of innings on his arm. So that's the fear, but it could have worked. It still could work. I think I think Noel's great. I think he's criminally underrated. He always has been. Looking towards the bats, um, the Mets need another bat in the middle of their order. Uh, yeah. First, though, we're going to talk about Pete Alonso. Um, Stearns at first said that he was going to be a Met next year, then said most likely going to be a Met next year. Now it's sounding like he's not going to trade Alonzo. It's probably going to play out in like a judge scenario. Do you see Pete Alonzo with the Mets long-term? I feel like that, right? Like he just seems like a guy who likes being here and wants to be here. And I think we're just talking about Nola, a guy who they were so far apart in their negotiations last offseason, him and the Phillies. And then you didn't even hear anything about it. And in one second, they're back together in this offseason. Like he did test free agency like quote unquote but he seemed like he always wanted to be a Philly and I feel that way about Pete it just feels like right now Pete and the Mets are far apart because all the reports have come out like unsubstantiated but that's what's coming out right now is that he wants to be paid like not only like one of the best first basemen in baseball but like as one of the top players in baseball where it's like okay like if you if someone wants to pay Pete Alonso like significantly more than like Freddie Freeman or Matt Olson got or like similar to what Aaron Judge got like they like that that might just be something that someone else just pays him and then he he's a great Los Angeles angel for his entire career, but just as of right now, a guy who he, he's great. He's, he's one of the best power hitters in baseball. I think, I don't think anyone in baseball has more home runs since Pete Alonso got to the major leagues than Pete Alonso, but 
his event, he's the first baseman. So defensive value, I think is a little, it doesn't really matter as much as in terms of every position in the baseball field. I think first baseman has the least defensive value. So him, some people think he's a good first baseman. Some people think he's not a good first baseman. No matter, it doesn't matter. He catches the ball and he hits dingers. Like I want P. Alonso to be a Met and there's no one's going to hit as many home runs as him over the next few years. But I, I, if he, again, if he's, if he's going to be one of the highest paid power hitters in baseball, it doesn't seem like the Mets will be paying him that. And if he goes to free agency and he realizes that every other team's offer is really similar to what the Mets are offering him, and I think similar to Aaron Ola, he winds up just coming back. And I think that it's a little early to tell. It feels like it will be on the team next year, but it's it's definitely a little more stressful than I would have liked it to be at this point. Yeah, I totally understand that. But then another thing we got to think about, like, so he rides into this year with us, then say our team is you know five eight games under 500 at the trade deadline and they still have no contract in place what are they doing it's that's going to be really interesting to see unfold it is it's also funny because like in terms of the trade market first base is never a position that really gets the people going like i can't remember a trade besides mark to and that was like almost 15 years ago now where a team like gave real capital to go out and get a first baseman like the Braves gave up pennies to get Matt Olson. Like I can't even think of another like notable first base trade that's happened recently. Like Josh Bell last year, but that's not even the same universe or galaxy as Pete Alonso. So it's like you'll be you're, that, and that's also seems like the disconnect between like Boris and the Mets in general, where it's like, are you a first baseman or are you a transcendent power hitter? And like technically you are both, but that's what the market dictates. Like here's the other first baseman who are similar to you. Here's what they get paid, and like it depends. It will depend then, I guess, like in this hypothetical situation, like how much the team ready to spend on power? Like how many, what are you trying to give up for him? Cause like maybe a lot or it might really not be that much. Cause teams just kind of fill first bases with whatever, usually the last couple of years, but it would definitely be a fun exercise for Davis Stearns. Again, like I, I trust him whichever way he went on it. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm like, obviously I want Pete Alonso long-term as a Met and I'd be willing to pay him as the highest paid first baseman in the league. Right. And I think Freeman's making 27. So, you know, you would, give him 28 i i just don't want to see this like 10 year type deal you know what i mean like that's to me that's not to me that's not sustainable because the latter end of that he'll end up being a dh hopefully he's still hitting those dingers right but you can't bank on that and then you're stuck with the you know 10 year 280 million dollar contract for a guy that's going to be a designated hitter towards the end of his career and then again, you know, you mentioned Olsen. Olsen's making $21 million. That was a steal. That was a typical Braves contract right there. No idea how they got that done. But then also Gold, a guy like Paul Goldschmidt, I think is making 25, 26. So to me, Pete Alonso has to be willing to stay within that ballpark. And then, you know, going back to what Matt said or what Matt said, um, you know, when you look at the trade market, a lot of teams are now in the race. Uh, with the expanded playoffs and more teams are willing to spend. We saw it this past year. You know, you might be able to relay something for him. Obviously it wouldn't sit well with the fan base, but I agree with you. I, I trust David Stearns. And if you would to say like, that's the right call at that time, based on the lack of negotiations or whatnot, I all trust in David Stearns, man. Yeah. And I feel like in terms of every position on a baseball field, like getting first base production is one of the, more easy to find just around it's just the difference is again like transcendent power which is what p alonzo has like i don't know how to replace 47 home runs this mess lineup like like you really like right now there's only one other player you think might hit 30 and that's francisco lindor so like after that like you need home runs to win baseball games like you just watch the rangers steamroll the entire league and hit more home runs than like most of the games they played and that was their formula to winning a world series 
So you do need home runs. And the fact that the Mets have less home runs in general on the roster definitely gives Pete more leverage. And you should use every leverage you can. Like every player should get as much money as they can. Like, yeah, I love loyalty. Like I want a guy like a P. Alonso to be in the Mets his whole career, but like I'll never fault any athlete for getting what they're worth on the open market. Like absolutely not. Like this is it. You got one shot here. Like make your money, dude. Like go off, gang. But again, it would be cool if P. Alonso met forever. But it's a weird. It's so weird in terms of Mets roster construction too, because they don't have that kind of power anywhere else. Like not many teams do, but usually teams have a little more spread out than the Mets right now. I know. Yeah, and where are you looking for the power? If you're James, the GM. James the GM, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sucker for Jorge Soler. I just want some dingers. Yep. Jorge, Sol- Jorge Soler's plate skills have gotten better the last few years. He hits the crap out of the ball. Like, I'm not really – he just put it out of Miami for a year. I'm not really scared of him getting it out of city field at all. And I think in terms of all the power hitters out there, this free agency, like, I think he is the most notable. Like, I think he's a step above Teoscar Hernandez, a guy who gets lumped in with a lot. I mean, like, obviously Shohei Otani, but it just seems like there's – that's just it's almost like you can't even talk about that because it's like that's such a whole different other realm of like free agency discussions that it's like yeah okay show Otani won now we're talking about everything else too and like, i get that but like i mean he's like Otani, like it's, it's all it's all moot like then we're good i don't really care he could, i mean if, yeah he could probably play first base in five years if he needed to but Paul Harper. After, yeah or exactly after after solaire i think then like teoscar is good but teoscar is such more of a wild swinger than solaire i get a little bit worried about him having a multi-year contract into his thirties and like swinging, expanding the strikes on a lot. I think that Reese Hoskins is a little sneaky. I don't think people are talking about him as much. Just there it is, Maddie. He came off the ACL and then he, he's always been a good hitter. Like I am scared about him with the ACL. The fact that he was never really that good of an athlete. And now he just tore his ACL, which I'm like, all right, damn, and he's already 31 years old. But in terms of like power and plate skills on the market right now, like it's hard to find someone who beats Hoskins. Well, first off, I, completely agree with the take of Solaire and then and then Hoskins. I think that Hoskins is a really good bounce back um you know candidate. A guy that I also like, but this would kind of complicate things for the Mets is Matt Chapman. Yeah. Um uh, obviously his his defense is not as prominent as it was, you know, like the Nolan Arenado status when they were, you know, competing for who was the best defensive third baseman. Um offense wasn't as great as it was this past season in Toronto. But we've heard that the Mets plan on going internal at third base. But, you know, you look around at some of the players and you understand that 2024 may be a transition season, but a guy like Beatty and Vientos and Mauricio, they all showed such inconsistencies and you don't really know what that next step is. And on top of it, we need a bat, you know, Talk to me about third base in general. Obviously, I brought up a Matt Chapman, but A, would they entertain? Do you think that the club would entertain something along those lines? But B, is it in an, an internal route that they're going to end up taking? I feel like, again, that's something that will be really determined by where they wind up taking this offseason because they've been really vague about, like, we want to compete next year. It's like, yeah, okay, me too. But, like, I don't know if that means, again, like putting a bunch of money down like last year or being like 2025, 2026. It's impossible to tell right now. And I think no matter what, they, again, will be competitive this year, but I think a guy like Chapman, who, again, also is past 30 years old, he took him like two years to get over like a wicked hip labrum tear that he had that sapped his power, screwed up his swing for almost two calendar years. Now he finally got back on track last year, tore it first half, fell off in the second half, but still like did a lot of the things under the, you know, under the hood that are like the things you want from your top power hitters. He barrels the ball, he hits fly balls, he doesn't expand the strike zone. Just take some hacks. And I want a guy to take some hacks, but he just feels like a guy that someone's going to wind up wanting him more than us because 
I do think the Mets are really earnest about wanting to give a true trial to both Bailey Fientos and even like to a different degree Mauricio, even though he's a different case because he's gonna be more of a middle infielder for us. Probably play some third base too, but I'm I'm really curious to see this year as the Mets again overhaul this coaching staff how they help especially Bailey and Vientos on defense because last year it just felt like there were a lot of times where those guys both didn't make a lot of good plays at the hot corner. There were a lot of moments where I felt like that I wish they wish I wish they would have done a little bit more of that. But the Mets and like watching the games, like playing very the most amateur baseball ever. Like usually a third baseman will stand either in or back. And I felt like there were a lot of instances with the Mets where there was like this no man's land thing going on where you're standing in the middle of the dirt. And when you stand in the middle of the dirt as a third baseman, you get yourself on every single in-between hop. And I feel like there were so many times where Brett Beatty was indecisive, whether going back on the ball or coming in on the ball and like caught in between hop and just like didn't have the hands to field or the game just felt like it was moving fast for him. But I'm curious when we get new coaches, new infield coaches out of there, maybe position ourselves a little bit differently, how that affects them both on defense. Cause everything, every time I saw Brett Beatty play minor league baseball, like I was like, he's defensively fine. And like Beatty has a great arm. Like Vientos probably is a little better hands, a little better, a little better hands, a little better feet, but much more erratic arm. Like he profiles me more as a first baseman than Beatty, but even like, it wouldn't be crazy either if Beatty moved over there, like depending on what happens to P. Alonso, worst case scenario. And Beatty just, his minor league track record, he did too many things well above average for me to be like, that one bad year of sample like is going to define him as a player. I just don't think, it, I just really don't think it will. Like I'm still very confident he has power. He doesn't expand the strike zone very much. He hits a lot of fly balls. Like the ground balls were a bad thing this year that went back down to where they could be, but his minor, like his upper minors track record fly balls was so much better than most other minor leagues we've seen. Like, he's a guy who, like, you watch him take batting practice, you're like, oh, my God. Like, he's a behemoth. Like, he crushes the baseball. Like, yeah. he hits a harder than you'll ever see. And, like, I I think it's just, again, it's worth, like, whether it be in, like, a 300 or 400 that-bat sample, maybe instead of, like, a 500, 600 that-bat sample, like, he needs to be on the field regularly and see what we got here. Because I think, I think he's too good and he has too many good things to actually not be good. I just want to see Beatty hit the ball harder. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, like Vientos, Vientos was hitting the ball at a hard rate last year. Alvarez as well when he was making contact. Mauricio, obviously. Um, just I'm I'm waiting to see Beatty because he reminds me of Christian Yelich so much, and uh, the way that he's up there at the dish, and then he ends up rolls over on everything, and there's no like solid solid contact. And when he does make solid contact, it's beautiful. He barrels up on the ball, and it's and it flies, you know, or it splits the gap. But I just want to see more consistent hard contact, even if it's a foul ball. I don't give. I really don't care. Some of that some of I feel like that Beatty got into trouble with last year, and has gotten into trouble with I think a little bit in his career is that he he's more of like a spray hitter. Like he was always more of a doubles hitter who found the power because he was so strong. So then it becomes like, I've heard Andrew Vaughn talk about struggling with this too, like adjusting to the major leagues. And like, I've special talks and talked about this a lot. Last year, you finally clicked it together where it's like, it almost becomes more pitch selection than what you're able to like follow through with because like, it's easy to take a fastball the other way and like drive in the gap for a double. But like, I want to, I want to maybe, if I can't do the most damage with that pitch, and this, this, this is a whole like baseball thing. Like this could, this, for some players, it could be impossible to unlearn because you're just, you have your attack methods the way you have them as a hitter. Like being able to like let the pitch go, you, you want to hit for a single to hopefully get the pitch you think you hit for a homer. Like, I want everyone to look at Brett Bailey's spray chart too, because like when he hit the home runs, he mauled those pitches. Like he was hitting balls like 430, 440 feet when he was connecting on them. And like a lot of times, it was more of those breaking pitches low in. And like that's like the power alley for like that's the power spot for a lefty. Where I don't know, I just think I think there's a lot more that can happen with him developmentally, and the physical tools are still so good that 
it's I got I won't I won't quit I won't quit the guy. I won't do it. Yeah, no, definitely. And he was way too high regarded of a prospect to give up on him. Yeah, we, for didn't, sure. we didn't really see that much. So I think with um with the new coaching staff coming in and Stearns, they're gonna evaluate all of his film, which is gonna be big. Um, they're going to look at, you know, his deficiencies and things that he did wrong last year. So I think after they do that, recognize that he has a, this is a big spring training for him. And I yeah. hope he, I hope he, I hope he's like out and hitting the gym freaking 24 seven grinding because like, this is a big year for Brett Beatty and we need to see something. We need to see, um, we need to see him not even hit harder, but just, Hit for for the power that we know that he has. So just um, develop. Yeah, just get better. I, again, like like a guy who like is weirdly gets compared to Beatty is uh, Alec Bohm because he was also high draft pick. Even though Beatty was a high school guy, Bohm's a college guy, and Bohm I think right now is like almost five full years older than Beatty, if not four. And like Bohm had that little like forty game sample when he first came up. Again, at the age that like a little than even Beatty is, where he was great, and then he played a full year like almost 30% worse than league average then he played another full year like barely at league average then he just played another full year barely above league average where it's like okay like development just takes a while like sometimes with these guys like right now Alec Bohm's a 27 year old who's like barely a league average hitter like projects is barely a league average hitter where it's like probably expect more of your first round pick but even just getting to that point for Brett Beatty I think would be a huge step in the right direction and that's also not saying that the Mets don't bring in a veteran. Like, I don't know. I, people talk about Justin Turner. Like, it's never been, like, linked in any way directly. But, like, I think that would make some sense. Like, I think, yeah. like, Heimer Candelario makes some sense. Has no short-term deal. Like, I think just getting – and, like, Stern's talked about this. Like, competition is not a bad thing. Like, we want to create opportunities for our young players to improve. But also, if we see a way for our baseball team to improve, like, we'll take that. And then, if you want to get your job back, go take it. That's possible, too. So, I think that's all part of the equation for these guys. I also think another thing is, you know, obviously – they have the likes of Jet Williams, Luis Angel Acuna in the, in the minors and uh, some other infielders, Marco Vargas. Obviously, he's way down the line. But, you know, something that you could think of is one of those three that were mentioned, Beatty, Vientos, or Mauricio, being used potentially as capital in a trade f- to bolster whether it's a rotation or, um, you know, another area of the team. Obviously, the Mets aren't going to be the only team that still sees upside in those guys. So, you know, not only is it the prospects that we could end up dealing because we've heard, you know, some trade potential packages, um, but it also could be one of those three. Yeah, totally. Like there's only you know, like a nine spots in the diamond. So like eventually all these guys can never probably be on it together. So I think it, a trade theoretically would make sense, but it's also, I think there's, there's like so much more you can get in value in terms of like trading the shiny new thing rather than the thing that's like gone a little rusty for a year in the major leagues. And like, even with that, like guys like, I think I think Beatty still has plenty of trade value, and I know the teams will come knocking for him. And like he could be the centerpiece in a real deal. It just becomes the Mets again reluctance to move him and like and quit that. But Vientos is a guy without really any defensive value, and he hasn't shown enough to be an elite hitter to where I think he has a lot of value. And like Mauricio plays more plays more premium positions, and he does hit the crap out of the ball too. So we might get something there. But I think like the other guys, especially the young Mets pitchers, I think they're I think they're just open to whatever right now. And I think you can kind of see that based on the fact that Stearns cleared out so much of this 40 man roster already. Like the Mets are heading into the offseason with 27 guys in their 40 man. It's kind of unprecedented. Yeah. So it's like there's no like no like it's no relationships. You're just being viewed as a baseball player right now. So like if he sees any way to upgrade anything, especially as he wasn't the guy who acquired any of these baseball players, like he will have doesn't seem like he'll have any remorse or any second thoughts if he thinks the deal will make the team better in the for the long run or the short term to make a move like that. And that makes it all like kind of a little more fun for us, definitely a little more nerve-wracking for them. 
but it's like any anything can kind of happen. That's kind of the joy right now. Hypothetical here, okay? Steve Cohen got very angry at Stephen Matz's agent <laughs> when Stephen Matz's agent blew him off, ended up with the Cardinals. If he loses out on Yoshinibu Yamamoto, and if he loses out on some other guys, what do you think the percentage is that he just says, screw it, I'm going to buy the Mona Lisa and I'm going to buy uh, Shohei Otani? I think I think that they're just going to just give him as much money as they can and just be like, just make you say no. Like I, I, like, I don't think Steve Cohen's the kind of guy who will forgive himself if he's not in this race for not only like one of the most prized baseball assets we've ever seen in the open market, one of the most prized like marketing aspects we've ever seen in the open market. Like what he could do for just like let alone this city, like it'd be an attraction every single day. Like even if even if Shohei Otani didn't pitch last year, he still would have been the MVP. Like that's how good of a hitter he is. And his Mets team just needs a left-handed power bat as bad as anything. So I think that he. I think they're going to go for it. I think they're going to go for both. I'd be shocked if they got both, but like nothing would really surprise me from Steve Cohen because I mean you talked about before Matt, like businessman first, like scared money don't make none. Like if you if you if you go out there and buy these two players, like you're going to be going to be asses in those seats. There's probably going to be anyway, but like that's going to be some stuff. So I think that I think that, I mean I'm not going to say it's impossible the Mets get Shohei Otani. If I if I don't know, I think I'd probably I'd be surprised if he didn't wind up in the West Coast. It seems like the Giants and the Dodgers are the two who are really gunning, and they have a lot of money to spend on it right now, and they know they're in competition with each other, and they hate each other. It's going to make them go even harder. But, yeah, like I don't know. If Steve gets neither of those two guys, I think it would be a little bit of a surprise. I honestly, I would think if we don't get one of those two, it would be a big surprise. Um, I think that they're going to have to because they need, they need to shore out this rotation somehow. I think Yamamoto's has got to be their target one, and it's gonna sting if they miss out on him. I hope they don't. Um, I projected him to sign with the Red Sox. I really hope that I'm wrong. I would love hmm. to be wrong on that, but um, I think I think um, I think we're in a good spot, and uh, we have more definitely more moves to be made. There's a lot of free agents out there. I just I trust David Stearns to do to make the right moves, you know. Too. I mean, quick. Well, what's what's one Mets memory you're thankful for? Oh shit! One um, Mets memory that I'm thankful for. Yeah. Okay. Mets moment. We just tweeted out for Mets stuff. We're trying to get people to say some stuff. If you guys want to go reply on there, we're gonna read some on the podcast this week. But just like hit me with some some Mets stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, something that I'm thankful for is. Wow, this is really just the way our fan base is and our fanhood is gone. Um, yeah. I, I'd say I was, uh, um, 2004 Mets Tigers, Mike Cameron hit a walk-off home run. It was Sweet. one of the first, it, he did a nice little Sammy Sosa trot to the right. Um, and it, within that game, I was nine years old. Omar Infante was on the Tigers ripped a foul ball. I actually leaned my glove over at Shea just on a whim and grabbed it. And other than that, all the good moments in Mets history for me that I've seen have ended up in heartbreak. So I can't really say any of that. Yeah, no, of course. For me, I'm going to go a little more recent than that. Um, (laughs) I'm going to say the Mets trading for Yoana Cespedes. I think that that unlocked a... 2015 was the most fun I had as a Mets fan, I think, ever. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget being a freshman in college and coming home on the weekends uh, 
when my dad would say, got tickets to this game, got tickets to that game, come home. So I was at the game right after the, you know, the fuck you Utley when he took out uh, Tejada's legs. That was such a fun game. But just Yoannis Cespedes that year, man, I'll never forget sitting there just saying like, what did we do to deserve such a stud (laughs) at the bat who just every time gets up at the plate, you think possibly a home run. Him mm. with his swagger and all of that taking us to the World Series. Neon. Yup. That neon yeah. does I was I was there the parakeet night actually, weirdly, that run. That was kind of that was a weird like meme that came out of that, but no, that was that was a good time. Yeah. So so I was I was just about to ask uh before we hop off, what what are you thankful for in terms of Mets uh my, Mets lore? My, my favorite one ever was I was like nine or ten years old and it was Subway Series, Shea Stadium. When David Wright had the walk off double off Mariano. Oh, okay. Like that yep. was probably like one of my one of my coolest moments of being a Mets fan. I also think about one like this is like a like a meme I'm more thankful for where I was at another Subway Series game, my dad, like years after that, 2014. And Mets had two pitchers debuting on back to back days, major major league debut. And he's like, Let's go to one of these games, let's see one of these uh, rookies. And I was like, I Yeah, it's a really good idea. He's like, which one do you want to go? I was like, All right, um, that Tuesday, it's a uh, Rafael Montero. I think he he's he's a better prospect than the other guy coming up. So let's just go see him. And that night, Montero got smoked, and Masahiro Tanaka threw a complete game shutout against the Mets. And the next day, Jacob DeGrom started just being a dog, and that was it. Uh, James, listen, man, we really appreciate you hopping on uh, for you know quite quite a bit of time. It was really appreciated, and uh, we look forward to uh, touching base in the future, man. Yeah, totally, dudes. Yeah, appreciate you guys having me on. Nice talk to you both. Yeah, you as well. Also, where where can I get? Where can I? Uh, actually, I'll talk to you. I'll send you a mug. All right. All right, I'll take a mug. All right, perfect, perfect, perfect. I'll send you a mug. Thanks, James. I uh, we appreciate your time, brother, and have a great Thanksgiving. Got you, fellas. You too. Yeah, James Shano, everybody from the Mets Up Podcast. Appreciate it, man.